Hey awesome people, welcome back to the second episode of our second season of Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. Again, we're trying a few different uh, things this season, so you can catch an extended version of this interview on our website. But without further ado, here's our interview with Sashenka Warsman, who's the CEO of Oaktree, which is Australia's largest youth-run development agency, which is on a mission to see young people leading, demanding, and creating a more just world. Enjoy. My name is Sashenka Warsman. I am the CEO at Oaktree. And as in terms of what I'm passionate about, I'd probably say it's a cliche when you start sort of talking about your mission at the organisation, <laughs> um, but definitely seeing a world where people have the opportunity to thrive. And when I say opportunity to thrive, it's not my version of thriving might be the same as yours. It's actually each of us have different versions of what that might look like. And having the opportunity to actually fulfil that is something I'm passionate about seeing everyone have. What kind of sparked that? Yeah. So, I mean, I I didn't really have like one moment where I was like, "This this is the time when life changes forever. But I did. So I grew up in Sri Lanka for most of my life. For those of you who know, Sri Lanka is a tiny island nation in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's been through decades of civil war. And I mean, through all that, I actually grew up in quite a privileged family. But I always knew that something wasn't quite right. We were privileged enough to have a gardener, but he used to bring his orphan niece along with him when he came to work sometimes. And she was a couple of years younger than me. And it was just the little things that I noticed. I mean, so Vishmi became one of my closest friends. And I noticed things like when we'd want to colour one day, as most eight-year-olds do, I pulled out my new books and colour pencils for the year that my parents had bought me and she came, pulled out her notebook and then started erasing the pages. Initial reaction was, what are you doing? Why are you erasing all the hard work you've done? And she just turned around as she does quite blasé, saying, oh, Sash, I just, you know, I need to erase the words on the pages so I can use the book again because we can't afford to buy a new book. I mean, I think even as a young eight-year-old as a kid you know something isn't quite right about that situation what was it about me and where I happened to be born that made my opportunities far greater than that wish me had and I suppose growing up I always knew I wanted to do something about it I always knew that there was a wrong that I needed to be part of writing but you never really knew how got involved in little things donated always helped people who I saw but it can feel overwhelming, I think, when you see challenges in our world and you see injustices to actually know where to start. And as a young person, you go, well, one day when I'm an adult and I grow up, maybe then I can do something about it. But I suppose that's where all of this started. I've always grown up in a family that was about being kind to the people. It was about being humble. You're, you're not any better than anyone else. It was about being grateful for everything that we had. And I think those values, along with seeing and experiencing life in Sri Lanka definitely played a part in sparking this passion. What kind of gave you, I guess, like the courage or the conviction to, to say that I can actually make a change here? Because sometimes it seems like these problems, they're too big, like me as a young person, like what am I going to do to shift the needle? And Yeah, I mean, I think that was me for a very long time. I did the likes of, you know, the UN youth talks and stuff. I, I did couple of days volunteering going to you know homes and providing food and stuff like that but you always knew that was 
light touch and I was kind of sick of talking about the problems and just wanted to do something about it. I think when it shifted for me was when I moved to Australia. So I moved to Australia in 2009 during the peak of the Civil War and came here and went, gosh, like I've got so much opportunity here if I'm not doing something. Like who will? Went to university and you know how you go for um, O Weeks? And there's like 7 million stores that you can sign up for. I was that kid who like signed up for all of them. I was like, yeah, one of them might be okay. Not even knowing. I was like, oh, free chocolates. I'll sign up for your thing. But in all seriousness, so I met friends in my first year of uni who had started volunteering for different groups. And they'd said, hey, come along to this event that was on at uni. And, you know, let's find out about what we can do to help. And I was quite cynical, to be honest. Volunteering for me was talking about the problems, not really doing much about it. Oh, that was my perception of it when I was young. Completely shattered that perception when I went and had a look at what young people were actually doing. And I probably was one of those people who thought, what can we actually do as a young person? Surely I need to grow up, get experience, quote unquote, before I'm skilled, quote unquote, enough (laughs) to do something and make an actual difference. And I saw that it was actually that year that a group of young people had lobbied hard enough to get Cadbury to go fair trade. And that was, I mean, it seemed small, but when you look at the issue and you look at how many chocolate bars are being sold and how many people now, I mean, there's flaws in every version of development, but I, I, I truly believe that a version that allows people to get a fair wage to, and where it sees young people, not children, not having to be exploited for us to be able to enjoy chocolate. I felt that that was pretty profound that a group of young people had been able to do it. And that was the first thing I saw. But I mean, since then, I've seen young people achieve things that I could have never imagined and people who it isn't their job to do it. They're not paid to do it. They're not doing it because they have to. They're doing it because they care. And it completely changed my perspective of volunteering. It changed my perspective of what young people could achieve. And I mean, for the next six years, I volunteered 20 hours a week. And it was probably the best thing I've ever done. (laughs) Yeah. So I suppose it was a combination of events that made me feel, no, me changing the world one day. That had to be today Um, because if everyone waits for one day, it will never happen. Did you ever lose kind of motivation or you hit a roadblock during that time? I wouldn't say I hit a roadblock, but I was definitely challenged. So in 2011, I went to the UN Climate Talks in Durban. And I'd say that my understanding of what change could look like at that level was probably challenged. I saw conversation after conversation, negotiation after negotiation kind of land on nothing. And climate change is a massive issue. I saw countries that had power definitely having more of a say rather than countries that were affected by climate change more. But while I was probably slightly disenfranchised at that time, I saw what civil society could do in those spaces. And I believe in the power of civil society, of people in the grassroots actually speaking up about the things they care about. And that's probably when, I mean, while I felt knocked back a little bit, it probably was what motivated me to come back and work for organisations that got everyday people to talk about the things they care about and turn thoughts and values into action. Maybe jump into how, how you came to this role at Oaktree. What was yeah, your journey yeah. to that? Like I said, I volunteered for six years. If anyone wonders whether there's value in volunteering, 110% yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, not just 
for your soul, but also your career. <laughs> I volunteered for World Vision's youth movement, VGEN. I volunteered for the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And I learned so much that books couldn't teach me about what it means to practically make change. And then, uh, so I studied a degree in law and international studies, thinking that law was the way I was going to change the world. <laughs> Realised soon that I don't like reading lots, so <laughs> that wasn't the path for me. But halfway through my degree, I got a job at World Vision running their youth movement. So I was the national director for VGEN for a couple of years. And then went back to uni, actually. I was like, well, I need to eventually finish this degree of mine. And while I was there, it was a funny story because I wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan to work at Oak Tree. I'd always seen Oak Tree and admired it from afar. But then someone came and said, hey, this job's coming up. You should think about it. It's closing tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. And I'm actually, I, I lived in South Australia at the time. But then, you know, when you don't feel compelled to have a job, you ask all the questions you want to know. And every answer I got from Oak Tree was like, I'd be stupid to let this opportunity go. Like this organisation is meaningfully creating impact in a way that I haven't seen a lot of others do. And I, I think it's an incredibly unique place. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit more. So, and I'd said to the person, if you see my applications, because I mean, I went home, called my husband. I was like, so what do you think? He's like, well, obviously you need to apply. <laughs> I was like, yes, obviously I do. So I applied and three weeks later, I was moving to Melbourne again. Best decision I've made. Yeah. Just to jump back on, on something you mentioned there, you said that through volunteering, you kind of learnt a lot of things that you wouldn't have like reading books or something like that. What are those kind of insights that yeah. you had? I think, I mean, it's a bit broad to say tools, but it is tools. It's like, what do you do with your passion? I think there's a lot of us who are really passionate but don't know what to do with it. It's it's simple things like how do you tell your story? Like what is it that makes you as Sash actually care? What is it that you're good at that can contribute to this movement? I learned things like how to project manage, like really practical things, how to manage my time when I was at uni still having to do a job to you know feed myself but also volunteer I learned how power worked and how where influence actually counts I learned I learned about the issues I cared about at a much deeper level and where my efforts could actually make a difference but I think the best part is being able to do it with a community of people around you who are also on that journey of learning but deeply care about what they're doing and you feel, you don't feel isolated or alone. You know there's others out there who care just as much as you do. There's others out there who want to do something about it. And there's others out there who don't necessarily have all the skills but will learn it. And if you care enough, you can learn anything. And I think being able to practically do something about the issues I cared about was empowering. And knowing that I was being equipped with the skills to do it mm. meant I felt like I could actually contribute. Mm. So, yeah, so that's what I'd say I learned from volunteering. I mean, I can give you a list of all the workshops <laughs> I've run through, but <laughs> those are some of it. When, like, a young person is approaching volunteering, yeah. there's so many organisations, so many different roles that they can get involved in. Yeah, should they be actively thinking about, oh, what skills do I want to do, like, learn and where that matches best with this position? Or is it more like, okay... Yeah. I enjoy, I'm passionate about this cause or yeah. I like these people. I often use this analogy. Imagine two lines. One line is uh, where the greatest needs are in the world and where your passions are. And the other line is where your greatest skills are. Where those two intersect is where you're needed. And that's how I describe it to people. So I'd say understand 
what you are passionate about, what drives you, where the needs are in this world. Where, where is it that you actually could add value? And then understand what is it that you're good at? What energizes you? What are your strengths? And find a place where you can match those two. And when I say, I mean, I don't talk about just hard skills, like I'm good at maths, so I can do accounting. But it's even things like I enjoy problem solving. I enjoy working with people. Could be like I enjoy skydiving, figure out how that makes a difference. And I mean, I'm sure there's a way that you could contribute through being an adrenaline junkie <laughs> to some sort of fundraiser, who knows? I mean, but actually you could figure out ways to make sure that you are finding that sweet spot. I'd say volunteering is, there's a way to do it well and there's ways that you, multiple ways you don't do it well. I'm sure many of you have heard about volunteerism where you go, you feel really great about building this house and a community. Was that actually contributing? We don't know. You've heard about the damage that it, that volunteerism can do when you go and visit orphanages, for example. Volunteering needs to be meaningful. I mean, th that's why I think at Oak Tree, you get as much as you give when you volunteer, both the organisation and the individual volunteering. I mean, here we have people who match their skills to what we need. People might think, oh, I need to study development and aid in order to volunteer for an aid organization no like we need legal officers we need accountants we need designers because we can't do this work without all of them so whatever it is that you're studying you can use that for doing good or whatever it is you care about or interest in you can use that to do good and you don't have to have the technical background. I mean, our chief of staff who heads up uh, state operations and people in culture, she actually studied biology. Like she studies epidemiology. <laughs> it has nothing to do with yeah. HR or operations or project management, but she's great with people. She's great at problem solving. She's great at project management. She's good at the role. I think really like understand yourself and understand where the challenges are and where you can make a difference. I guess from certain people I've been hearing you know, it doesn't really matter why you're volunteering, as long as you're volunteering, you're helping the cause. Like, what's your sort of thoughts on that? Volunteering can definitely serve purpose for self in terms of, I mean, it can progress your career. It looks great on your resume if you've done the right stuff. However, I genuinely believe that even as an individual, you won't get as much out of it if you're not there because you truly care about being there and you care about making a difference. I mean, you come into Oak Tree and it's, it's, it's a fantastic place, but it's not easy. And even for myself, like when times are hard, it, just yesterday I was saying to my husband, I was like, and I'm like exhausted. But when I'm tired, I know that I can tell myself I'm genuinely making a difference and that this hard work is paying off. And if you're not doing it for something greater than yourself because you truly think that you're making a difference, where do you find energy from to keep persevering through the hard times, keep persevering when things fall through. People think that not-for-profits are an easier gig, it's not. It's arguably, it's harder because you're doing the same work for a cause and you're trying to change social norms. So I think people can come do it for whatever the reason they would. I mean, personally, I think it's better to do it than not do it at all. But if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're finding meaning and you're finding community and you're finding that you're contributing to something that's actually creating impact I think it's just more fulfilling for everyone involved as well as the organization you can you can feel the culture of an organization when you walk in I know that every single person here is here because they want to be here not because they have to and 
every day I walk in, I can feel that. <laughs> and it makes a difference to the work we do because passion, if you're passionate about something, you want to make sure it works. <laughs> and we want to make sure it works, which is why it does. I mean, I think it sparks innovation. I mean, it's the effectiveness of having people that actually care in the organisation. That's why we, we say we'll love our skill. We, we don't want skill, we want someone who wants to be here. <laughs> How do you find those people? I think people come here because they know that's part of what they're getting into. I think, I mean, we have pretty comprehensive interview processes. We interview to values, we interview to culture. I think people come here because they know that's what they're going to find. And when you interview someone, you can tell if they're passionate about it or not. Just building on that kind of passion line, often people out of university will kind of throw out the line that, you know, I'll go into corporate sector and, you know, I'll build up skills and then perhaps I'll shift later into the not-for-profit space or I'll maybe like earn to give. What, what are your kind of thoughts on that? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it goes back to that piece I was talking about, you don't need to be an aid worker to make a difference in development kind of piece. I think if... Even corporates are made up of individuals. And if individuals work with a conscience and they work to see greater good, whatever that might look like, each of our theories of change look different. I think as long as you're not doing harm, if you're, if you're in, I, I mean, I think a banker can make a difference if it's a banker with a conscience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If it's someone who's not working solely for the purpose of profit, but for the purpose of serving people. I think you need all kinds of people to make the world go around. You need people who are willing to work within organisations, do the work hands-on, do the development, do the activism. You need people who are able to fund it as well. But I think ultimately it comes to you can't take with one hand and give with the other. I think it's a hard sell when there's not alignment in the way one's living. Does that make sense? So it is that premise of taking with one hand, giving with the other. You can't justify screwing someone over on this side in order to do someone good on the other side. Right, right. So I think it's it's really, it comes down to each of our conscience, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And whether we can, we feel comfortable and proud of what we're doing. If we are working to make money so that we can donate, do we, do we still feel proud of that? And if, it, if, you, if you do, good, then keep doing it. I think we are ultimately the best judge of whether mm-hmm. it creates impact on it. I think we, we know ourselves. So I guess I know Oaktree is quite popular, but mm. just in case one of our listeners hasn't yeah. really heard about Oaktree and what they do, mm. can you give us a, I guess a quick summary of how Oaktree works and what they do? Yeah, sure. So Oaktree is young people leading, demanding and creating a more just world. We are a completely youth-run organisation. Uh, every single one of us is 26 years old or younger, which is pretty fantastic. We are an international development agency, so we do programming overseas in order to end poverty and injustice. We are Australia's largest youth-run organisation. We have 250,000 supporters. Yay, thanks to all of you. <laughs> and we are a 99% volunteer-run organisation. In terms of how we work, so we work in three main ways. We build the capacity of diverse young people, whether that's here in Australia or internationally. We do programming overseas, which helps young people get out of poverty, but also empowers them, empowers them to be able to contribute to decision making. And we run fundraising and marketing campaigns that resource us (laughs) to be able to do that great work, which domestically includes campaigning and lobbying around policy. So when you're working overseas, how does that work? Are you guys the ones actually 
doing the projects? Yeah, so so we believe as Oak Tree that we need to partner with organisations on the ground to understand how best to work. So we partner with local organisations in the Asia-Pacific region. We work very closely to design the programs, we monitor and evaluate it, we fund it, um, but at the end of the day we believe that the locals know best how their community works and what they need in order to make you know life a little different and where does oak tree kind of sit in the whole international development space um yeah. because sometimes it's hard to place with like you have world vision you have oxfam yeah. and like world vision already has like a youth yeah. element yeah. to as well yeah. yeah i mean i might give you the spiel okay. <laughs> uh, on why young people because right. i think that will help us it helps me explain i think that oak tree is more important than it's ever been right now and the reason, I mean, I know that's a pretty bold statement, um, but the reason I say that is right now, over half the world's population is under 30 years old. There's never been such a large population of young people in history, right? However, so I would say this is not just a demographic statistic, but it, it's a historic opportunity because young people are affected most significantly by the world's challenges. So if you think about it, one in two young people that live on less than $2 a day, a third of all refugees are displaced people, young people, 40% of HIV infections, young people, 40% of the world's unemployed young people. I mean, I could keep throwing you stats, but basically young people are affected quite significantly, disproportionately by the world's challenges. And Similar to, I mean, we've seen it with the gender movement, we've seen it with the disability movement. If young people aren't creating the solutions for the problems that they're most affected by, I don't know who will, and I don't think anyone else is better placed to create the solutions. I, as a young person, understand what I need better than someone who's 40 years older than me, because I live a different life. It's not to say that someone else wasn't one day young themselves, but we're growing up in a different generation. It means it's different to be a young person in our generation than it was to be a young person in the baby boomers generation. We are digital natives. We are, we have access to information like we've never had before. And that changes the way we think and it changes the solutions to the problems we're facing. So the reason I say Oak Tree is more important than ever is because as a completely youth-run organisation, we are in an incredibly unique position to develop these solutions to the challenges facing us today, particularly for people in our region. I mean, so 90% of young people live in the global south. So that's our direct neighbours, that's Papua New Guinea, that's Timor-Leste, that's countries that we work with, Cambodia. That's why as a development agency that's trying to end poverty and injustice, we feel uniquely placed to work with our peers to develop these solutions to program effectively. So I'd say, I mean, I'd say we are in in some ways, you, you could say we're similar to the likes of your World Visions, your Oxfam, your Save the Children's, we do development programming, we want to end poverty and injustice. But I suppose how we do it is a little different because our mandate is so unique. Mm -hmm. right. How do you leverage the, I guess, experience of others mm -hmm. if people are kind of have to move on when they're older than 26. It feels like sometimes you're almost like forcing to push the restart button. Yeah. Um, and is there a bit of a like a brain drain or like how do you yeah. capture that? I mean, with this model, there's certainly real opportunity, but there is, are challenges too. And turnover for any organisation is a challenge. So for us, it's about understanding how we retain organisational knowledge, our processes in our inductions and our trainings in order to get the next person who comes in up to the standard that the person who left that work before them was. But 
I mean, when we, we talk about the concept of youth participation, right, so having young people at the core of decision making, youth participation goes all the way from being tokenistic all the way up to the fifth level, which is leadership. And this is a framework, you could say, that Oak Tree has developed. And at that level of leadership, you see, we want to see young people leading change, but it doesn't mean that older adults aren't supporting. So we have networks of people who have worked for decades in the industry who support, mentor and advise our people. We learn lots and that I think it's really important not to sort of have this conversation in black and white of young people can do anything. I think we certainly can do almost anything. But I think it, that there is something to be said for someone who's worked in an industry for 10 years longer than that person has. But it's about how do you give young people independence and autonomy to make the decisions, but still support and advise them to have the information they need to make the right decisions. So what I'd say in terms of sort of the age limit thing is, one, I think it's about preparing, being prepared for turnover. I mean, it happens all the time as at Oatry, so it's not a surprise for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, it's about how are we equipping our young people with the tools, skills and knowledge to be able to do the job well. Mm-hmm. And three is about how do we actually take on support and advice to inform the decisions we make and how we work as an organisation from older adults. Do you have any advice for perhaps smaller organisations or maybe even like, say, a student club because they probably face the same issues around yeah. turnover? I'd say don't create bureaucracy for the pe- for the purpose of bureaucracy. However, sometimes bureaucracy can make processes more efficient. <laughs> There's a lot of words, but I hope I got the message in there somehow. But I think some processes are really important. So what are your induction processes? I think that's a really important thing. How are you actually training up people to be able to do the role well? So we have training pathways here at Oak Tree that allows people to be able to get there. I and mean, we also throw people in the deep end. I'm sure, Regan, I know you've been part of Oak Tree. You've probably felt that. <laughs> um, but also, how do you ask for help? Our alumni are an incredible network and they mentor a bunch of our volunteers as well. So if you've created a culture and community where people truly believe in the value of the organisation, you'd be surprised how many people want to help. You'd be surprised how many people want to give their time and their skills to support. So I'd say it's two-pronged. It's what can you do yourself to ensure that you're building the capacity of the organisation you're at and retaining knowledge. I mean, it's stuff like how are you saving your files? <laughs> do people know where to find something? It's something, I mean, we still find challenging. And the second is how do you ask for help and where do you find the answers? There's, in, there's a little bunch of people out there who can give you answers. It's about finding the right ones. With, uh, with Oaktree and how it's kind of structured, how do you kind of maintain that kind of culture? On our last engagement survey, 99% of volunteers highly recommended Oaktree as a place to volunteer. The 1% was a negative. It was actually neutral because people had been at Oak Tree for a week and they're like, well, I don't know yet. (laughs) Um, So it's an incredibly high rate, right? And like I said, people are here because they want to, not because they have to. And if people don't think it's a great place to volunteer, they won't be here. So we take culture very seriously at Oak Tree. We have a really, really positive, strong culture. And I would say it doesn't happen by accident. It's small things, right? It's things like when we wrap up a campaign, we'll get pizza and get some drinks and everyone stays back and we'll have a boogie. Um, We have retreats where we bring our leadership team together. We have our farewells are really elaborate. (laughs) We have teleconferences every two weeks where the whole organisation signs in or comes 
in person and here's what the organization's going through. We remind people of what our vision and mission are. We tell them stories of impact. We have community. So, you know, people come here and they're not just coming to work with colleagues, they're coming to work with friends in the end. And those are like sort of those more like momentous like event-based stuff but I think it's also a culture of building trust and transparency we are a very consultative organization we've just gone through a refresh of our theory of change our vision and mission and every single process we ask people what they think and people contribute meaningfully it's not just like a survey of like tick this if you like it but if you don't come and tell us we want to know and we're better for it the more minds we have engaged in our processes one we'll have a stronger outcome two we're not leaving anyone behind on the bus you know we've got everyone there pushing it if we need it so I mean I've mentioned a couple of things there but it's also things like we take the individual seriously we have growth plans for our volunteers some of our volunteers have mentors we care about the individuals because it is the individual that makes up this organization Oitri is at its strongest when our people are at its strongest so that's really important to us and I think we've created systems processes that aren't just because you have to do it anymore, but because we love doing those things that make people want to come back. Um, And I hope they continue to want to come back. (laughs) You mentioned like a a theory of change. What what, what does that mean exactly for for those who might not know what the concept is? Essentially, a theory of change is what do you believe change looks like and how do you believe you get there? So a lot of people might say ending injustice is our vision or mission or what we want to see happen. But Each and every one of us would have a different way of getting there and every organisation has a different way of getting there. So at Oak Tree, we believe we get there through young people. We believe that young people need to be part of the decision-making process. We believe in advocacy. We believe in influencing decision-makers. We believe in programming for young people. That's our, I mean, parts of our theory of change. And the recent refresh of the theory of change partly came due to what I was talking to you before about the demographic opportunity we have with half of the world being under 30 years old and with young people being disproportionately affected by the world's challenges, we felt that we don't just want to be development agency that happens to be youth-run. We're a development agency that is youth-run for the purpose of actually making our work more effective. Um, Young people are both the means to the end, but they are also the end in and of itself. So this theory of change captures our evolution as an organisation, I suppose. So I'm curious to get, I guess, a bit of an understanding of sort of Oak Tree's political engagements and what yeah. sort of the strategies around that and how that translates to tangible change. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so with our mandate of poverty and injustice, um, obviously the policy areas that we choose to work on vary. Something that we've worked on very strongly is the aid budget. I'm sure many of you know it, but, I mean, the aid budget is at a historic low. It's what Australia contributes to communities internationally to help end poverty and injustice. And it's something we strongly believe in. And we are very disappointed that it isn't at the amount we believe Australia can and should be contributing. So what we do is we help young people go and say that. (laughs) The way we do it varies. So we have two programs at the moment. One is called student ambassador program the second is campaigners for change student ambassador program is for young people under 18 and the campaigners for change is between 18 and 26 where we train people up because we i've said this multiple times you can be passionate but you need the tools to be able to do something with that passion we have hundreds of young people who come to us and we train them up to be able to 
go and talk to their local MPs, to write letters to their members of parliament, to talk to their teachers about why they care, to talk to their parents about why they care, to talk to their friends and peers about why they care about issues. We then have young people, like I say, going and meeting their local members of parliament. We have young people travelling all the way to Canberra and lobbying hundreds of politicians at any given time. We also have young people here in Oak Tree who write submissions if policy is being you know, looked at. We identify policies that we do want to change. So right now we really want DFAC to have a youth strategy in how they're program aid. And we contribute in any way we can. I mean, the foreign policy white paper was just launched last year, early this year. And we literally went around the country and asked young people what they wanted to see in Australia's foreign policy. And the results were amazing. Like, we didn't want to put words in people's mouths, so we actually tried really hard to go to communities that weren't already part of Oak Tree's, right. um, Oak Tree's sort of network. Uh, and young people want to see a more peaceful society. They want to see our aid budget increase. They want to see us address climate change. They want to see us address refugees and d- displacement. If we don't have organisations that get the voices of young people up to those powers that might be, we won't be representing half our population. And it's really important that we do that, whether it's at the grassroots talking to our local MPs or whether it's going over to Canberra and asking them to change policy and submitting our versions of what that might look like. It seems there's like a lot of, I guess, intangible stuff in there. How do you guys measure the impact? (laughs) Measuring success of advocacy. (laughs) Well, that's a hot topic. You have another 45 minutes for that. Um, I think that's where the theory of change comes in is you need to actually track all the actions that you're doing and see if that's resulting in anything. I mean, one good way is feedback. So we get feedback from politicians, for example, who'd say that particular action did on X date for these weeks worked really well. Keep doing it or don't do it. If they're getting pissed off, it's probably working as well. (laughs) If you're getting enough momentum on social media, those are things that you can start measuring because it is about that ripple effect and it might not have any knock-on effect for another two years. So you can't afford to stop things preemptively either. So it is about really tracking what are the actions we've done? What are the results that have happened since? Have we contributed to any of those outcomes? And hoping that they are. And I think you you, you can, in time, you can tell. It's hard sometimes in the short term, but if you're trying to work towards short-term outcomes, you can tell as well. On that idea of short-termism, have you ever sort of had that experience of say, maybe supporters of the organisation wanting their funds to maybe go directly to the cause. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a hard one that I think as an Australian society we're grappling as, as a development community. I think in the not-for-profit industry in, in, in general is, I mean, you always hear how much is actually going to the field. But I think it's about, I think we have a responsibility to change how we talk as well. I mean, if instead of saying X percent goes to the field of the dollars you donate. What if you said, cool, X percent goes to the field from the dollars you donated, but also from the other dollar you donated, we made three more dollars from it because we're fundraising or we made 10 more dollars because we increased the aid budget. So I think it's also about how do we message it in a way that people understand impact. So it isn't about, cool, of my $10, $5 or $6 went to the field, of the other $2, they made $8 out of it. And of the other $2, they made another $20. That's, I'm pretty happy with that. But if we stop at 60, 70, 80, whatever it might be, percent goes to the field, and everyone's like, what happened to my $2? We're not doing a service either to help educate the public on what's happening. But at the same time, I think the public needs to 
trust and understand the long-term game that we're playing. If it was easy and cheap, <laughs> it would have happened already. Um, and that's why we're doing what we do. Maybe we should try and sneak in Live Below the Line. Could you maybe just briefly talk about what it is? So Live Below the Line is a peer-to-peer fundraiser. For those of you who don't know, we essentially we challenge Australians to live on less than $2 a day because that's the official poverty line. Live Below the Line has been tremendous. It was literally like two young guys in a backyard chatting about, mm, how do we make money? How do we get people to care? Um, oh, this sounds like a good idea. Let's try it out. And it had success that we probably weren't anticipating. Right. With peer-to-peer fundraisers, though, and you will see this in most peer-to-peer fundraisers, there's a life cycle. So it peaks, it then plateaus, and then it starts declining. Oak Tree, similar to other peer-to-peer fundraisers, uh, Live Below the Line fundraiser has seen, is now in that phase of decline. Is it a problem? Yes. It's never something that you celebrate when you're like, oh, it's making less money. Is it something Oak Tree is uniquely facing as a challenge? No. Um, I I don't think we're immune to the challenges that the sector is facing right now financially. What are we doing about it? I think that's the important question to ask. And I think something we try to pride ourselves on is creativity and being innovative. So we are testing different fundraisers. We use sort of agile principles of working now. So we test it. If it works, we take what works and we keep doing it. If it doesn't, we throw out what didn't work and keep what did work and create a new product. But in saying that, Live Below the Line, I think, has evolved over the last few years as well. It used to traditionally be primarily uni students, you know, running it in their schools, or I mean, in their universities doing it themselves. Now we find that a lot of secondary students are spearheading this campaign. So we have a number of schools across the country. We have student ambassadors. We had over 300 student ambassadors run Live Below the Line last year. They are the ones who are really taking this forth. And I feel like it's breathing new life into the campaign. And I'm excited to see what happens this year because we really are focusing Live Below the Line as a grassroots campaign being run by secondary students. So I think it's just a thing of let's, let's wait and see what happens. Let's see how yeah, the other cool. products go. And if, you know, if anyone has ideas, we, we always <laughs> love having ideas. We have papers out here that's like, how do we make money? <laughs> People put post-its up. So, and one of those post-its wound up being a new fundraiser. So if, it takes two, which actually launches in next week. So if anyone wants to hear more about that, it takes two.org. Oh, cool. <laughs> Just a cheeky plug in there. <laughs> Normally uh, we'd finish up with, is there anything else you would like to add, given that you're kind of speaking mm-hmm. to young people interested in social change and is there any kind of books or films or any kind of media pieces that you would recommend for young people making an impact? I feel like we've covered a lot, but if there's one thing I would say, don't wait for one day. Today needs to be one day. Don't wait to grow up or get experience. Being a young person itself gives you a unique lived experience that adds value. So that's what I would say. If you think that there's something that doesn't quite feel right and sit right with you and says a wrong that you think needs to be corrected, don't wait for someone else to do it. Find out how you can do something yourself, whatever that might look like. Books or films? Well, I'm, I'm a fan of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. So, and they've launched a number of great films this year. So have a look at what they've launched, particularly because it's stories that you don't often hear in mainstream media. In terms of books, Utopia for Realists I find fascinating in terms of it just, it challenges uh, in some ways, but maybe solidifies some ways of thinking. But I think it's a book that says we need a new dream. And as this generation of young people, what is our dream for the world? I read a lot of books like The Lean Startup (laughs) and stuff like that. Take of it what you will. But I'm sure there's a whole bunch out there that I can send through to you guys if you put them up.